I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we continue our New Testament reading by reading Romans chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. In chapter 5, we have uh, first 11 verses deal with moving on in faith. Verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now, as I mentioned when we looked at chapters 1 through 4 of Romans, I won't be able to share with you all of my comments on these four chapters because it would just take too long and make too long of a podcast. So we'll just make uh, some comments to try to cover the high points, and if you'd like to get the detail, then uh, look at the written notes of BibleTrack.org. Now, I will comment that uh, on the right side of the page on the written notes for today is a pink box that has important salvation words found in Romans. And uh, there's where you find the formal definition for grace, faith, believe, sin, righteous and righteousness, and justify. We looked at those and covered those when we looked at chapters 1 through 4, but if you need a refresher, they're right there on this page. Now, in the previous four chapters, Romans chapters 1 through 4, Paul established that life in Christ and righteousness before God are achieved through faith and not by works. He began making this point back in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, where he said, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. He then declared the process by which that righteousness comes to believers when he wrote in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, to review, let's make a statement that encapsulates Paul's discussion from chapter 3, verse 21, up to this point in the passage. And here it is. One is saved from sin only by exercising faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, and that's completely without the addition of works of any kind. Now, verse 1 begins here with therefore. That's to indicate that the peace of verse 1 is possible because of the principles just covered in chapter 3 and chapter 4. So, peace is possible because justification makes us have the peace with God because we're justified before God. As a matter of fact, the words being justified actually come from a single Greek verb 
It's an aorist passive participle, and the aorist tense indicates punctiliar, which means point-in-time action as opposed to a continuing action. So read it like this. Having been justified. In other words, I was justified once and for all at the point in time when I was saved. Now, doesn't that give you peace already? Just think about it. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because you've been justified by faith. So, we've been justified by faith, and subsequently we have peace with God. Now, here's the contrast. If you think it's a works thing, you'll never have peace with God. You'll always wonder if you've done enough work or displayed enough righteousness. I mean, no rest ever. Peace comes when you know that you've done everything required to be counted as righteous before God at the time of your salvation experience. Now, verse 2 tells us that by Jesus Christ we have access by this same faith, and then the wording is, into this grace wherein we stand. The Greek noun for grace there is charis, and it means free gift. Now, this is important. Not only are we saved by grace through faith, but we also live our lives after we are saved by that same grace, and it's through faith. Miserable are those people who incorrectly think they are saved by grace, but then kept by works. But wait, there's more. When unpleasant things happen around us, we don't panic. Why? Well, it's because of the sequence we see in verses 3 and 4. And here it is. Tribulation, the Greek word flipsis. Difficult times is what that means. Tribulation builds patience, and patience builds experience. And experience builds our faith in Christ's ability to deliver us. The Greek word there, peace, translated hope, means confident expectation. Now memorize that sequence. Again, tribulation works patience. Patience builds experience. Experience builds our faith, which means Christ's ability to deliver us. Oh, by the way, notice carefully that the first step to obtaining patience is tribulation. So to pray for patience, well, that's to invite some tribulation, isn't it? And the really great news of verses 6 through 11 is that we are headed for home with Christ because of his finished work of justification on the cross. I've met many people who felt that they were too unworthy to find favor with God. Paul addresses that right here in these six verses where he says, Christ died for us in verse 8, even though we were yet without strength in verse 6, and ungodly in verse 6, we are saved from wrath, we see in verse 9, though we were previously enemies of God as displayed in verse 10. The Greek noun for wrath in verse 9 is orge. Here it's preceded by a definite article making it the wrath. Paul frequently uses this term to identify the judgment of God upon the unsaved, as he does so here. In other words, whatever you passed, you could be saved from the wrath by trusting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Now let's look at a contrast. A contrast, Adam to Christ, beginning with verse 12. Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, 
much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now before we discuss these verses, let's understand some terminology that Paul uses in verses 12, 14, 17, and 21. In each of these verses, the Greek text precedes the word for death with a definite article. So what, you might ask? Well... When Paul uses this combination of death, preceded by the Greek definite article, which is the, the death, it's a metaphor for mortality. Now, if you'd like a complete explanation on this usage, then uh, I have a link uh, that you can click on on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today's reading. And uh, it takes you to a place that uh, is an article I've written on Paul's usage of the term the death to indicate mortality. You may want to click on that link in today's reading in order to read those and see exactly what I'm talking about. And who is that one man in verse 12? Well, that's Adam. He brought sin into the world. Paul then points out that sin, which is rebellion against God, existed in the world even before the law. But it was the law that gave it accountability. Verses 12 through 14 tell us that provisions of the law of Moses put a big old red tag on actions of rebellion against God, which cries out, I'm guilty. Even though not exposed by the law of Moses, verse 14 tells us that death reigned from Adam to Moses. Now, this is an indictment against everyone ever born. Uh, With regard to the sin question, the sin nature, everyone was born with it, with sin, since Adam. Though the law of Moses exposes sin, nonetheless, man was still accountable to God for that sin before Moses ever existed. Everyone is under the death sentence issued to Adam in Genesis chapter 3. Adam gets an old-fashioned verbal beating in this passage, and it's well-deserved. Notice references to Adam as referred to by the term one man in verses 12, 15, 17, 18, and 19. In other words, he's responsible for all of it. Detail in the written notes of BibleTrack.org. Read those if you wonder more about that comment. Adam's transgression was way more than a fresh produce infraction. From that time through today, man suffers the consequences of Adam's transgression in the Garden of Eden. Look at my notes on Genesis chapter 3 for more detail on that. So, here's what we see. One man, Adam, brought sin into the world and to all his descendants, and another man, Jesus, made all of his spiritual descendants righteous before God by his sacrificial death on the cross. Now, that's exactly the doctrine that verse 19 drives home when Paul says, Therefore, as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. 
Now, in summary, while we are made sinners by Adam, all who trust Jesus Christ as Savior are made righteous through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, lest one forget the role of the law of Moses, Paul hits it again in verse 20. Here's what he says. The law entered that the offense might abound. The law of Moses condemns. It never, never, never justifies. But grace does justify. That's the grace we see through faith in verses 1 and 2. Adam's transgression robbed mankind of immortality. Jesus' death on the cross restores that immortality. God's grace delivers the believer to eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord, which is what it says in verse 21. In chapter 6, the first 14 verses, we see baptism, water baptism, as a picture. Verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Well, the theme of chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21, has been justification by faith without works. Now, since people are so works-oriented, Paul begins this chapter with a very provocative question in verse 1. Here it is. Allow me to rephrase this question. Since we're saved by grace, that means the free grace of God, the free gift of God, why not just continue living a life characterized by sin to take advantage of even more grace? Hey, it's an extreme scenario for the purpose of making a point. I mean, given the fact that many critics of salvation by grace do, in fact, have problems understanding the finished work of Christ on the cross, please allow me to frame the question once again that Paul answers in verses 1 through 14. And here it is. Since we are not saved by works, but rather by grace, why not sin, sin, sin? After all, there are no consequences, right? To this, Paul says an emphatic no, and the King James Version translate that, God forbid. Actually, the Greek phrase there is me genoita, and uh, that means absolutely positively not what it means, and the strongest way to express that back in 1611 was God forbid. In verse 2, we see that, and also found in verse 15, God forbid once again. Now, here's his point. When we're saved, the Holy Spirit delivers us from the attitude of sin. 
Paul prepares to introduce a concept in verse 3 when he says this, So many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Paul then uses the act of water baptism to present the picture in verses 4 through 7. Baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The burial into the water is a picture of putting away the old sinful man, and the resurrection out of the water is a picture of our new life in Christ, no longer enslaved to sin. As a result of salvation, this water baptismal picture is summarized in verse 11 when it says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed into sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Life in Christ now involves shunning sin and seeking God's best for our lives. Then verse 14 says that we should no longer be bound by sin. Now we're under grace. We see another strong verse on water baptism in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, which says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice here, baptism doesn't save us, but rather it's a figure as in the answer of a good conscience toward God. Now, verse 5 merits some additional comments here regarding the form of baptism. The Greek word for baptize is baptizo. It's one of the continual discussions among Bible scholars as to whether or not the Greek word itself speaks only of the process of complete immersion in the course of baptizing. Most credible dictionaries of the New Testament of New Testament words do link the word with complete immersion as opposed to just sprinkling. However, when you look at verse 14 here, the discussion of the exact meaning of the Greek word itself becomes a moot issue. Look at the phrasing again in verse 5. It says, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Context itself in this verse demands that the form of Christian baptism be immersion with that very phrase, planted together in the likeness of his death. When someone dies and we bury him, it occurs to no one that we should just sprinkle dirt on the dead body. I mean, we always completely bury them. Well, that's the picture presented here in verse 5. Baptism is to represent the likeness of burial. Sprinkling with water simply doesn't present that likeness. There's no question that Christian baptism is done by immersing the believer completely in water. Water baptism gives the testimony of verse 6. As we identify with Christ in baptism, we state our intention to no longer serve sin. Now understand, salvation has already taken place, and it's complete before water baptism. The act of believer's baptism that follows is a personal testimony to the world regarding one's intent to now serve Christ. It neither adds nor subtracts to the quality of the salvation decision. It's a testimony that follows afterward. So less studied Bible teachers have misunderstood the implications of verse 7 when it says, For he that is dead is freed from sin. They've taken it to mean that true believers don't sin. Actually, the verb translated is freed in the Greek is dikaio, and it means to justify. There in the perfect passive indicative form, it means literally this, has been made righteous. It has nothing to do with lifestyle. It speaks strictly regarding our position before God, which is righteous and justified, means free from the penalty of sin. 
But those incorrectly teaching that this verse teaches us that saved people don't sin add to their argument 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. From this, they incorrectly, I might say, deduct that a true believer's sin nature has been replaced and is completely immune to sin. That's a doctrine sometimes referred to as sinless perfection of the believer. It's a bad doctrine, and it's not scriptural at all. We are a new creature because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at salvation. Notice 1 Corinthians 12:13. We're baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25, which we'll look at in a few moments, uh, where there he expresses his frustration with his own still existent sin nature. He talks about the same internal battle between the sin nature and the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. And he gives the solution to the problem as the power of the Holy Spirit in verses 22 to 25. Notice the words of John in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Here's what he said. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Paul says in this passage that after salvation... We are no longer subject to the dominion or control of the sin nature because of the delivering presence of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Verse 8 says, Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. We now understand from the previous verses that we, as believers, are dead with Christ. Moreover, our water baptism experience pictures that. So in what respect shall we also live with Him, as we see in verse 8? Well, your answer is to be found to that question down in verses 11 through 14. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we no longer need to be subject to the influences of our sinful nature as we saw in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. The Greek verb for reckon in verse 11 is logizomai, meaning to count. In other words, count yourselves to be dead to sin. Verses 9 and 10 make it very, very clear that the one-time death of Jesus Christ guarantees that death hath no more dominion over him, Jesus Christ. Likewise, death and sin shall not have dominion over you, verse 14, because of God's grace through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So if you're looking for some action items, they're to be found in verses 12 and 13. Don't entertain sinful practices. Don't allow yourselves to be drawn towards sinful practices and fill your time with God-honoring activities. In verses 15 to 23, we see that we are slaves to righteousness. Verse 15, What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, for as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness and to holiness." For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. 
What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin, and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul then, in this passage, asked basically the same question in verse 15 that he asked in verse 1. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Now, the God forbid of this verse, as I mentioned earlier, was a common uh, 1611 term for what we might say in the slang, ain't no way. Uh, information box is provided to the right there, which shows its usage in the King James Version of the Bible. Notice, however, that the believer does have a choice of obedience or not. He then goes on to say in verses 16 through 18 that we don't serve sin any longer, but Christ and his righteousness instead. We're no longer slaves to sin. It's an expansion from verses 12 to 14 regarding to whom we yield ourselves after salvation. Paul identifies us after salvation as slaves of righteousness. To understand what Paul means when he says of sin unto death in verse 16, one only need to look at the inverse which follows when he says of obedience unto righteousness. He uses death here as the opposite of righteousness, as in unrighteousness serving the sinful nature is the context in which he's using it here. Verse 17 speaks of that form of doctrine. The word form is translated from the Greek word tupas, from which we get our English word type. The Greek word for doctrine there is uh, didache, that's the general word for teaching. In other words, they obeyed that type of teaching which subsequently delivered them from being enslaved to the sinful nature, life in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, we see that we move from sin to being servants of righteousness. In verse 19, Paul issues a call for believers to separate themselves from the devices of living that are characterized as rebellion against God and embrace godly Christian living instead. Spiritual death is in view in verses 20 and 21 for those who are unregenerate, in other words, free from righteousness. Verse 22 emphasizes the importance of this godly Christian living when it says, But now, being made free from sin and become servants of To God ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. Paul sums it up with the oft-used verse, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now this verse isn't hard to analyze. If eternal life in this verse refers to a spiritual state, and it definitely does, then death here refers to a spiritual state as well. So, in other words, lost people are headed for spiritual death, meaning eternity in the lake of fire, as seen in Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. While saved people, on the other hand, are headed for eternal life with Jesus Christ. Even though Paul doesn't precede death with a definite article in verse 23, it's obvious that the same intent prevails in his writings as in chapter 5 in verses 12, 14, 17, and 21. The cost of sin is our immortality. The only way we get it back is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then in chapter 7, we have a widow analogy in the first six verses. Verse 1, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. 
For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband, so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. But when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter." In this passage, these six verses, Paul uses an example of the death of a husband to explain the position of a Jew to the law after the death of Christ. He points out that just as the woman is not bound to a husband who's dead any longer, so are Jewish believers not bound to keeping the law after the requirements of the law were fulfilled by Christ on the cross, and that's because of his death. In other words, The Old Testament law is like an old, dead husband. No hold, no authority any longer. Now, what about the effects of the law? Well, Paul addresses that in verses 7 through 25. Verse 7, What should we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good." Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do I allow not. For what I would that do I not, but what I hate that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good." Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then law, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin." Well, we see in this passage that the law really exposes our sinful nature and shows us our need for a Savior. In verse 7, Paul establishes that the law itself is not sin, but, but rather it exposes sin. He then refers to the law in this context as the commandment, his words, in verses 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13. 
Spiritually speaking, Paul claims in verse 11 that it was the law that killed him through its righteous standards of verse 12. Moreover, when it comes to the righteous deeds of the law, Paul continually came up short in compliance on his very best days. This is evident in verses 15 through 17. As hard as he tries, Paul himself found 100% compliance with the law to be absolutely impossible. He realizes that he fails to make the cut in his venture to keep the law in light of James chapter 2, verse 10, which says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. But here's the good news. Law-keeping is not what makes you righteous in the first place. I wish we could get all Christians everywhere to read and understand these first seven chapters of Romans. I mean, can it be made any more clear that keeping the law doesn't now, nor did it ever produce righteousness in anyone's life? The law only and has only ever condemned people. It never, never, never made anybody righteous. Paul then transitions into his struggle with sin as he declares in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Paul's struggle is seen in verse 15 when he says this, For that which I do I allow not, for what I would that do I not, but what I hate that do I. Whoa! Let's break that down. Paul honestly tells us that sometimes the desires of his flesh lead him to act in such a way that he hates. And it's because of that sin nature that remains in him in verse 17. He reiterates this point down through verse 20, at which time he concludes in verse 21. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. That's the Adamic nature we looked at in chapter 5. Paul introduces the solution to this dilemma in verses 22 to 25. That solution is the power of the Holy Spirit, which he refers to as the inward man. Paul's going to give us a comprehensive explanation of this statement in chapter 8. That inward man is the Holy Spirit directing us internally rather than externally. It's the Holy Spirit that makes the Christian life work. Now, I want to make a comment on a particular verse that we had in this uh, reading today, and that's verse 9. I've placed this special section here under verse 9 to make a point I stumbled upon when I taught through Romans a few years ago. I read across verse 9 for years without giving it any special attention until it was time to give a full explanation of exactly what Paul meant when he said this, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. Now, that's a curious statement from Paul in light of Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, where there he says regarding his own personal testimony the following, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Well, based upon this testimony, here's the question. At what point in Paul's life can it be said in Romans chapter 7, verse 9 here, that I was alive without the law once? According to his testimony in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he always blamelessly kept the law. Now, I believe I know exactly what Paul meant here. I'm certain that Paul is referring to his childhood as being a time when he was not accountable to the condemnation of the law. When did it happen that sin revealed and I died in Paul's life? Well, sin revived when Paul realized his personal need for a relationship with God. In other words, 
Paul speaking of what many refer to with regard to children as an age of accountability. It's not a specific age per se, but rather the point in time in a child's life when that child realizes his personal need for a Savior. The exact age for this realization differs among children. Here's the important point. During the time before a child realizes his need for a Savior, that child is safe from the condemnation of the law. In other words, that child is heaven-bound. Now, let's take an example from the life of David. David had a clear understanding of the safety of small children in God on the occasion of the death of his first son born to Bathsheba. This was the child born to them out of their adulterous relationship who passed away shortly after birth. After praying, David says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, But now he is dead, wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. There was a clear understanding in the Old Testament among God's people that they would be reunited with their little ones after death. Now, Jesus addresses the issue of small children in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. While most of that passage doesn't seem to deal with the subject of salvation of small children directly, additional strength is given to this safety of children proposition in Matthew chapter 18, verse 14, when it says, Even so, it is not the will of your Father, which is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. While we'd certainly like to see more definitive statements in Scripture about the safety of small children, the Scripture is actually quite clear when we study these verses in their entirety. That brings us to chapter 8 of the book of Romans, Lives Led by the Holy Spirit, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Now, these first 11 verses are key to understanding the Christian life. They answer the dilemma Paul expresses in chapter 7. Many believers don't get it. They believe that believers only do the right thing as they are held into accountability by other believers. These misguided believers beat each other over the head with external requirements. Man-made prescribed list of authorized thou shalts and thou shalt nots. Paul's clear in the chapters leading up to this one. And here it is. Righteousness is not attained by keeping the law, the Mosaic law, or a law devised by anyone else. Righteousness is achieved by trusting Jesus Christ as Savior, and a righteous-looking walk is achieved by dependence on the leadership of the Holy Spirit. That's the point of verse 1 here, which serves as an introduction to the whole chapter. Verse 2 further expands the concept by pointing out that our law as believers is internal, not external. It's the internal law of the Holy Spirit, not the external law 
from anyone else that keeps us living before God as we should. As a matter of fact, verses 3 and 4 point out that an attempt to achieve righteousness by keeping the law fails every time. But righteousness through the power of the Holy Spirit succeeds every time. Now, one might wonder about whom Paul is speaking in verses 5 through 7. Unregenerate people or saved people who are not living as they should. Well, that's an important question given the fact that he says in verse 6, for to be carnally minded is death. Furthermore, verse 7 says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Who is this carnally minded person whose mind is enmity against God? Well, before we answer that question, let's address the death of verse 6. Is it referring to physical or spiritual death? Well, here's the key. If Romans 6.23 refers to spiritual death, and I'm convinced that it does, then the death here also refers to spiritual death. It's within the same discourse in Paul's letter here. Therefore, the carnal mind is worthy of spiritual death, as in the eternal lake of fire. So again, who are these verses talking about lost people or saved people not living as they should? Answer is definitely lost people. Here's the reason why. First of all, spiritual death makes no sense if we're talking about saved people, but makes perfect sense when talking about the eternal destination of the unregenerate man. And secondly, verse 9 clears it up perfectly when Paul says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. He meticulously indicates that saved people are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Therefore, verses 5 through 7 definitely speak of the unsaved. Now, look at verse 8 closely. It says a mouthful. Here's what it says. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Can we please God without the leadership of the Holy Spirit? Well, no. Verses 9 through 11 drive home an important concept. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer at salvation. Verse 9 goes so far as to say that if you don't have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, you're just not saved. 1 Corinthians 12:13 explains the role of the Holy Spirit in the salvation process when it says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. In other words, our salvation experience consists of being baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. There is simply no other way to get saved. Don't shy away from the acknowledgement of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's the glue that ties everything together and makes it all work. Notice the phrase in verse 10, which says, And if Christ be in you, the underlying Greek phrase forms what's called a first-class conditional sentence. That type of construction presupposes the statement made to be true. Paul's therefore declaring that these Roman recipients of this letter are believers, and as such, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. There's another first-class conditional sentence there in verse 11, which further proclaims that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead physically will do the very same thing for believers. Now we see talk of being heirs in verses 12 through 18. Verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Verses 12 and 13 here have a little bit of bad news for believers. The sin nature has not been completely eradicated. That sin nature is referred to here as the flesh. Lost people live after the flesh and suffer spiritual death as a result. Saved people, on the other hand, have the indwelling Holy Spirit, which serves to mortify, which means put to death, the deeds of the body, and thus delivers us into spiritual life. If there's any doubt about the issue, verse 14 clears that doubt up. So who am I with regard to God and Jesus Christ since I'm a believer? Well, here's some great news. How is one led? The word there, ago, means brought. How is one brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Answer, by the Holy Spirit. Many have misunderstood verse 14. They try to use it as a proof text for works. As I mentioned, the Greek word for led there in that verse is the Greek word ago, which is also frequently translated as bring or brought in the New Testament. This verse doesn't refer to actions after salvation, but rather it refers to the process by which one gets saved in the first place. And that's this process, the Holy Spirit's convicting power and subsequent induction into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, according to verse 14, because I have been led to God by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, by the way, everybody gets saved just like that, therefore I am an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That's in verses 15 through 17. In other words, I am somebody. Yeah, but what about the suffering and misery we experience oftentimes in this life? Well, verse 18 says that these don't even compare to a hangnail, so to speak, in light of the glory for eternity that we'll experience. We see the whole creation waits for deliverance in chapter 8, verses 19 to 25. Verse 19, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature itself was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together unto now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body." For we are saved by hope, but hope that is not seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why did he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. The big event in the future of the whole earth is the redemption of believers. We see that in verses 19 to 22. Notice verse 23 that believers are people who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Literally, we are people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's what makes us redeemable, by the way. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 says this, Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ, and hath anointed us as God, who hath also sealed us, and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. In other words, the Holy Spirit seals us, and serves as the earnest payment on our souls. That's a great picture. Believers are awaiting our complete redemption at the resurrection of believers as seen in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 18 
and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 58. Now, don't be confused by our English rendering of the word hope in verses 24 and 25. The underlying Greek word is elpis, which literally means confident expectation. In other words, there's no doubt whatsoever associated with elpis, hope here. It defines that which cannot be seen, but is certain nonetheless. That confident expectation of our resurrection at the rapture enables us to wait with patience for that big event, the rapture. And then we see what else the Holy Spirit does for us in verses 26 to 30. Verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helped with our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Well, the Holy Spirit does plenty, but here's another very important operation. He delivers the intents of our heart to God in prayer. Yes, it's the Holy Spirit that makes prayer itself possible. Moreover, he makes our prayers effective. First of all, verse 26 tells us that it's the Holy Spirit who actually knows what it is exactly we should be praying about, and he prompts us. Secondly, verse 27 tells us that the Holy Spirit then intercedes on our behalf with those petitions and presents them to God. This then facilitates verse 28, which says, within the body of Christ, everything works together for good. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we would have chosen the events of verse 28 that may unfold, but it does mean that the Holy Spirit has prepared us because of verses 26 and 27. He's prepared us for the eternal benefits of those events. Romans 8:28 cannot be properly understood without the inclusion of verses 26 and 27. And then we have more good news. God knew all about it before it ever happened. He's completely in control, according to verses 29 and 30. Now, Paul's going to go into more detail with regard to his foreknowledge, God's foreknowledge, in Romans chapter 9. And we'll be looking at that in, in our reading in four days from now. So, what's the bottom line? We see the bottom line in verses 31 to 39. Verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter." Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, for those of you like myself who want to know the bottom line, well, here it is in verse 31. If God be for us, who can be against us? 
Since God gave us his only son as sacrifice, he's not about to withhold anything from us, we see in verse 32. Now, here's verse 33 paraphrased. Who's going to bring charges against us? Not God, he justified. Now, here's a paraphrase of verse 34. Who's going to condemn us? Well, not Christ. He died for us and sits the right hand of God interceding on our behalf. So here's the picture. God is for us. Christ is for us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We just can't be overcome. Now, that being the case, we can't be defeated by any of the circumstances we see in verses 35 and 36 because we are, as it says, more than conquerors. More than conquerors in Christ, as we see in verse 37. That leads us to two great victory verses. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. These are good verses to memorize for those hard times. Incidentally, this picture of Christ at the right hand of God in verse 34 has its foundation in Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. There it says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Peter embraces this prophetic psalm when he declares on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 36, he says this, For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.